Well, thank you, Brian, and it's indeed a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, Greetings from Calvary Grace Church in Calgary, Alberta, where it was minus 16 degrees only last week, so it's been lovely to come down here for some nice weather. It's been like Florida kind of weather for the last couple of days, but indeed, um, my own church will be meeting in, in a couple of hours and and publicly praying for you guys. So even when I do these kinds of things, it, it really reminds me of the, of the family of God and, and how we are all linked together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I've made a good friendship with Brian, as he says, over, over the years and um, been very blessed uh, to, to get to know him and, and Deborah uh, even more this uh, weekend. Um, but we come to the word of God now. And let me just pray briefly, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, make the book live to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would show us Christ in the Word, uh, that we would be thrilled as we see him and as we grow to know him more deeply and love him more passionately. I pray that you would minister to us by the Spirit according to the word today. Apply this word to the people's hearts in multiple and manifold ways. Build us up in Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, I've chosen, as you know, the book of Revelation. Brian said, pick something easy, so I chose the book of Revelation. (laughs) There you go. Well, the book of Revelation, it does show us the importance of the place of the church in the purposes of God in history. The importance of the place of the church in the purposes of God in history. And we see at the beginning and the end of the book of Revelation that Jesus is in the midst of his people. So that world history must be understood in light of church history. In other words, the most important thing that is happening today and has been since the early church is that Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. That is the most important thing that's going on, you know. The most important thing. The fundamental thing that God is doing in the world today with all the wars and famines and all the struggles that are going on around the world is he is building his church. We could say that world history is simply the stage on which God works out the drama of salvation for his people. And that's a wonderful thought for us as his people, you see, as the apple of his eye. And when the church is built, God's going to bring the curtain down on history. But along the way, we need to remember that Jesus is watching over his church. He loves his church. He's concerned for his people. So the most important thing about a local church is, is not the name, it's not the size, it's not the events or the different ministries it has or the color of its carpets or the style of its songs. The most important thing, the, the first and foremost thing is its love for God, which is seen in its love for one another and for those who are not Christians. If you like, the heart of the church must be the heart of Jesus Christ himself. In amidst all the activities and distractions and and persecutions that we face, we must keep the main thing the first thing. 
And we must never lose our first love. And that's the title of today's message. And it's easy to lose our first love and to lose that focus, especially as we've experienced much trial and travail over the last couple of years. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, everything depends on this, friends. And Jesus demands this of his church. So at the beginning of Revelation, we have these seven letters. These are the words of Jesus. Seven letters to seven churches. Now, these are, these are real churches of the original time, but they're also representative churches of any time. They have strengths and weaknesses that can be found in contemporary churches as well as those in the original context. So basically, churches haven't changed in 2,000 years. Christ is still head, the church is still the body, sin is still the same, and Jesus Christ has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So these letters, you see, then apply to that day, and to any day, and to our day, to the church. And here we have the first of seven. And you see it's addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, is this a real angel corresponding to a heavenly watch over that church? Or does the angel symbolically represent the pastor of that church? Scholars have differed in their view here. But what is sure is that firstly, the letter is for the church in Ephesus. And secondly, the letter contains the words of Jesus Christ himself. So sometimes we can get bogged down with all the scholarly arguments that are going on and we can know these certain things. It's to the church in Ephesus and it's the words of Jesus Christ himself. Ephesus in Asia Minor was a, a prosperous, influential city with a massive harbor and seagoing vessels. The city also contained the famous temple of Artemis or Diana. And much of the population was employed in business that surrounded goddess worship and this fascination with the occult and magic. Ephesus was a, a sensual, immoral, and godless city, much like many of the cities across the U.S. and Canada, and the U.K., and around the world. But God had planted a church there, you see, and one of the greatest of all preachers, Apollos, had preached in Ephesus. And with the arrival of the greatest of church planters, Paul, we, we read in Acts 19 of the radical impact that the gospel made as people were saved and the occult was challenged and there was a riot when businessmen who made money from making these little silver shrines of Artemis began to lose money when people were turning to the true and living God through Paul's preaching. Paul stayed there three years, you know, in that place. Three years preaching and then established a healthy eldership. And we read then in Acts 20 of the great love that they had for him as he left. And so here is a church in the midst of a pagan pluralistic city. A church where Apollos and Paul and then after that Timothy preached. And even the writer of Revelation himself, the apostle John in his latter days would have been. And John would have probably been taken from this church in Ephesus to quarantine in Patmos for where, from where he writes Revelation. This is a good church, and it was used to maintain a Christian witness in a pagan culture. And it was a church 
that Jesus cared about greatly. And the letter is described in verse 1 as the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus. Jesus is identified as holding the seven stars, you see, in chapter 1, verse 16. And here he is walking among the seven golden lampstands, the the churches. Friends, it's a picture here, a picture of the presence of the Lord Christ amidst his people. It's a picture of the good shepherd amongst his flock. Sometimes we can forget that. Jesus Christ died, rose, and ascended, intercedes for us now, and is coming again. He's the Jesus Christ that watches over you now. And he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. Christ is omnipresent with his people, but he's also omniscient with regards to his people. And so this Jesus says in verse 2, I know. I know your works. Now this idea ought to be at once both quite alarming and at the same time quite comforting to us, this omniscience and omnipresence of Christ. Alarming because you might be one of his sheep, but you can never pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. It's an early early morning bit of British humor for you. Well, it's true though. His blazing eyes see all. He's the unseen guest at every meal. He's the silent listener to every conversation. He will know what you say about my sermon later on this afternoon when you're discussing it. Just remember. But seriously, I think if we realize this more, we'd be more watchful, more circumspect. We'd be quick to repent of sin. It would be a great source of transformation in our lives, recognizing the knowledge of Christ upon us but this fact alarming as it might be to make us wakeful and watchful it's also very comforting isn't it because he knows he knows you he knows all the small acts of obedience that we do that no one sees he knows and that should be enough friends jesus says doesn't he in the sermon on the mount that the father sees what you do in private he hears your prayers in private, and he is pleased. You don't need to be seen by men to be faithful to God. It's enough that he knows. And you know he knows all your deepest longings, all your deepest hurts, and he sympathizes with us and is with us to the end of the age. A great comfort for us. A great comfort. I know some of you just a little bit this weekend. I've got some old friends I haven't seen for for years that have come, but I know you this morning will have many, many problems, many, many sufferings, many hurts, physical, relational, spiritual, and he knows every single one of them, and he sympathizes. He's with us to the end of the age, in the high days and the low days, even the valley of the shadow of death, he's by our side. What a great thought and great comfort that is. And the omnipresent, omniscient, risen and glorified Jesus comes here with the pastoral heart to his church in Ephesus. And he gives them three things. He gives them a a commendation, a condemnation, and an exhortation. Three things I want to probe for the rest of our time here this morning. So first, a, a commendation. A commendation. He says, I know your works, your toil. You see, they were hardworking in the Ephesian church. The people have stepped up. This was not a a let go and let God kind of church. 
Their motto was just do it long before Nike coined that phrase. They had a work ethic like Paul, the apostle, who says to the Corinthian church that he worked harder than anyone. And the same Paul that told them in the uh, book of Ephesians that they were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So they were hard working. They, they also persevered in this task. He says, verse 2, they patiently endured. They didn't give up. He repeats it in verse 3, as if for emphasis. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Of course, you've all been aware over the last 18 months, was it 18 months ago, that Prince Philip, the Queen's husband, died, and his life was a life of enduring duty and service he was part of what they called the greatest generation the world war ii generation now no generation is perfect but that generation was marked by enduring patiently they they suffered well and they didn't complain they got on with it and they got it done and that was the ephesians and that is a mark of maturity you know this this patience in duty so are you persevering patiently in Christian duty, that kind of perseverance isn't found amongst babes in the faith as much as those who are seasoned in the Christian faith. So they were hardworking, they were patient, they were also doctrinally sound and discerning. Jesus says in his own words in verse 2, he talks about how they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, they don't tolerate false teachers. They remember Paul's warning to them in Acts 20 that fierce wolves will come in to attack the flock. Men speaking twisted things. This church saw them off, and this probably means that they practiced good church discipline. They were intolerant of evil. In fact, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, verse 6. The Nicolaitans were the the anything-goes crowd that taught that Christians could participate in sensual practices associated with the Ephesian temple. How many churches nowadays are teaching that kind of anything-goes? Yeah, you can participate in that, still call yourself a Christian. Sensual works, but still take the name of Christ. But how interesting that Jesus commends the Christians here for being intolerant and full of hatred that's foreign to our culture isn't it our culture and some of the visible church is so tolerant of everything that it stands for nothing it's so tolerant of everything it stands for nothing but as Winston Churchill once said there are some things up with which we shall not put in only the way that Winston Churchill can say it so Jesus says he hates the work of the Nicolaitans. See, tolerating everything and hating nothing is so wrong because it is not what God is like. We should be intolerant to false teaching and we should hate sin because Jesus says, so do I. So do I. And friends, now is a time when the church is being tested, tested on issues of sexual ethics and sanctity of life. 
with bills being passed as law, which directly challenge this. And more than that, false teachers and teaching is arising within the church that directly tolerates it and will not hate it. So Jesus commends this hard-working, persevering, doctrinally sound and discerning church. But, he says, but, and now we come to the condemnation. So there's a commendation and a condemnation. Now some buts in the Bible are good. They're a breath of fresh air for us, if you like. Like the one Paul uses after exposing the lost state of all men in Ephesians 2 and then says, but God being rich in mercy. That's a good but. That's our life. However, this but is a condemnation. He says, but I have this against you. And to hear Jesus say, I have this against you, is quite a chilling thing. It ought to be a chilling thing. Notice he's not against them for their strengths. He never says, be less than hardworking, persevering, doctrinally sound and discerning. But he is saying that these things, great though they are, are not the only things that matter. And they had lost something that, if not found, would ruin it all. It would ruin it all. See, a deadly cancer had crept in. They had lost their first love. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. What is this love? What is this love he's talking about? Well, it's ultimately the living flame of love for Jesus and all that that entails in loving the church and loving the lost. That's what I think it means. Some commentators say that it's only love for God that's in view. Some say only love for the church that's in view. Some say it's only love for the lost that's in view. But surely beginning with love for God, the other things are connected. So that the Apostle John can say, how can you say you love God and hate your brother? And Jesus says that part of our witness to unbelievers is the way that we love one another in the church. That is how they will know that you're my disciples how we love one another. And Jesus can also say that the second commandment is summed up as love for neighbor. That could be another Christian, but it could be anyone, even enemies, especially enemies. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. It's the heart of the gospel, enemy love. So I think it's all three that's in view. Love for God, love for one another in the church, and love for the lost. These Christians here in Ephesus, they cared about being right, but they didn't care for others as much, which means they didn't love the Lord as they ought. You need to see the connection. We need to hear this warning, friends. This is a, a danger for doctrinally sound churches, and I know this is a doctrinally sound church because I know your pastor. We can be quick to judge, but slow to forgive. We're ready to fight against the world and fighting so in our blood that we fight against each other. Churches like this then are always fighting and you have to ask yourself, are you the kind of person who argues to be right but not to, to love? Argues to win the argument but not to win the person. And these kind of churches then, these kind of Christians, they split from one group and then it's not long before they split from another. 
So you can be against all the things you should be against, but not for all the things you should be for. And Jesus is saying to them, you hate what I hate, but you don't love what I love. I love my father above all, and I love my church for whom I bled, and I love those who are are yet to be gathered in, but whom I redeemed on the cross. Friends, have you lost your first love? Has decay crept into your devotion? See, Jesus' charge here is is not a lack of work, but a lack of joy and life and, and purpose. You're going through the motions in your Christian life. Are you orthodox in your beliefs, but are you cold as a fridge in your heart? Jesus warns us in Matthew 24 that in the last days, these are the last days, in the last days the love of many will grow cold. And here is a church that began with zeal and longing after God and his word, but the the flame is just now flickering. Doctrine and duty stand firm, but love no longer throbs in the heart. Maybe like a husband who leads his wife and family with great discipline and authority, but lacks love. Like a wife who may be faithful and fulfill her duties, but within her heart may have died and decayed and love is gone and only routine remains. How much worse for the bride of Christ to pay only formal homage to her bridegroom. This was a church that used to love to hear the word of God preached. Remember? How Paul preached every day in the synagogue to the Jews and then the Gentiles. And it says in Acts 19, such that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Do you love to sit under the preached word, friends? Do you prepare for it in the week before or expect to meet with with God on a Sunday, even on your Saturday night, you know? I'm not saying what time you need to go to bed on a Saturday night to be prepared, but maybe knowing the text ahead, praying about it, praying that your heart will be ready to receive the word meekly implanted. You would meet the living Christ through the word preached. Just remember, because you're in a doctrinally sound church, it doesn't mean you've been transformed by that. People say, oh, I go to John MacArthur's church. Oh, you must be a good Christian. Well, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily just because you go to MacArthur's church or Vody Borkham's church or Alistair Begg's church or Brian McCrory's church. It does not necessarily make you a good Christian, not unless that preaching has penetrated your heart and produced the fruit of love. It's all in vain with you, without love as its end, you see. I've been a pastor over 10 years and I've seen it before my eyes. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Great speaking, great understanding, great sacrifices, nothing without love. Sound doctrine, discernment, nothing if you have not love. Be warned here, friends. The church in Ephesus had lost its boldness for witness because they'd lost love for God and reliance on the Spirit. The Spirit who is the Spirit of love. 
And where do we show our reliance on the Spirit if not in prayer? Prayer, praying, stirs our hearts, you see, with affection for Jesus. Even as we sang those songs, which were were prayers, you couldn't help but, but have your heart stirred with affection. Be a praying people, praying that the sermon next week is deep and penetrating and Holy Spirit-empowered word work that gets into our hearts, digs out sin and makes us so joyful in Christ that we're filled with the love of God. Praying He gives us increasing grace for our relationships. Praying, even beseeching Him. When was the last time you beseeched the Lord? Beseeching Him to save unbelieving friends or, or family members. And see people flock through the doors into this place. I'm not just speaking about private prayer. I'm even speaking about corporate prayer. Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer that begins, Our Father in heaven, a a corporate prayer is in view. Whenever you do have a, a prayer meeting, do all you can to be there. Preacher Leonard Ravenhill once said, If you want to know how popular a church is, you go Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular the preacher is, you go Sunday night. If you want to know how popular God is, you go to the prayer meeting. We have almost 200 people at our services in uh, Calgary, maybe 30 to 40 at the prayer meeting. Now, our our prayer meetings have been growing in numbers in the last couple of years and growing in depth. And it's been an amazing thing to see people come and to hear people pray and to see people be blessed within that church meeting to see then how our church has grown. People are coming through the doors from all the nations but there's a heartbeat of prayer that's growing in the church. And I would say that wasn't there a few years ago in the same way it is now. If you want to meet for prayer and cry to God, come to the corporate prayer meeting. You see, this decay, this loss of love can happen. It has happened to this hardworking, persevering, doctrinally sound and discerning church in Ephesus, taught by Apollos, Paul, Timothy and John. So if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And it's like a slow puncture that leaves you with a flat tire. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. So this commendation, then this condemnation, and now finally an exhortation, Christ's exhortation. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So here is what to do, he says. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, remember where you fell from. There might be nothing for you to remember because you were never saved. And maybe this is the, the first time the The word of God is penetrating your heart and the good news of Jesus Christ who uh, came to die for sinners and rise again that through repentance and faith in him alone you can have that forgiveness of sin and, and be a child of God and have the hope of heaven and eternal life. Maybe that's happening for the first time and stirring in your heart now but for some of you, you know, 
you love the Bible and you, you prayed each day and you came to the prayer meeting, you want to be with the church and share your faith with the lost. I remember when I first became a Christian, talk about it a little bit in, in my book, and you know, I was on fire and I couldn't wait to read the Bible and couldn't wait to tell everyone and got myself in a few difficult situations because I went straight away into the dressing room at the soccer club and told all the lads that I was a Christian and then I got a little bit of stick for that, Mickey taking, but, but it was good. I was on fire and sometimes those days we can forget. Remember those days. Let it sit with you. Remember why. Why was it like that for you? This, this love for the Lord that just overflowed. Often in marriage counseling, I'll ask the couple to remember the days when it was good. And remember why it was good. And then I asked them to write it down. Because that's why it's good to journal, friends. Write your biography, even if you never publish it. Because as you look back, you see, if you're a true Christian, that your life is a story of God's grace to you. As you remember then, it will stir your affections for him into life. Where now they only flicker. And you just need to look at the Psalms, don't you? And you see the psalmist often in a period, in a... In, in a in an event of persecution or despondency. And then often he remembers what God is like and what God has done for him in the past and comes out the other side with new hope and renewed love and vigor. So remember, Jesus says, and then repent. Once you've remembered from where you fell, repent of where you are now, he says. Repent there in verse 5. Examine your daily activity and particular sins and where apathy and coldness has, has gripped you and neglect has come. Turn from that. Repent of your anger, your impatience, your bitterness. Name these things before the Lord and now clothe yourself in Christ and appropriate his full and final atonement. So remember, repent, and then return. Once you've remembered and repented, you've got to return. He says, do the works you did at first. Like the prodigal son, you return to your state of sonship. You embrace the goodness and love of your heavenly Father who, who's made you his own through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his son, and has made you a child born from above. I think sometimes we... We don't see God as that Father who is so eager to receive us when we've remembered and repented and returned. Like in the prodigal, you know the Father runs as he sees the Son. Runs and throws his arms around him. Ring on the finger, robe, kill the, the calf, let's have a feast. God is keen, he loves to restore he loves to restore sinners like us, his children, when we have remembered and repented and as we're returning. So do the things then a son of God does. Use the means of grace God gives to stir your love, the word of God, prayer, the fellowship of believers. And then love the brother who is unlike you in the church. Christ died for him too. And serve the sister who never gives you the time of day in the church, because Christ is her shepherd too. And bear witness to the world, because he has other sheep, and they will hear his voice. Remember, repent, and return. 
These are not suggestions from Jesus. These are commands. And there is a warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, I will remove my presence from the church. Go to Ephesus. Go to Ephesus and look for the church. Ruins. Travel around the UK, once that bastion of the gospel. And I was just in Pastor Brian's office there, and he's got some good old British heroes of the faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pictures of them up on the, the wall there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, and so on. Bastion of the faith, wasn't it? Great Britain, a while ago, years ago. See the church buildings there that have become sports clubs, nightclubs, houses even. Or worse still, where the building remains and the people say they're a church, but Jesus Christ left the building years ago. And they're bereft of the gospel. There's, a, there's an old church that, was, uh, that is at the bottom of the, the road that, that we lived in for many years, a little in a village called Bexley Village in Kent in England. Um, and it's called, uh, well, I won't name the church, but it's an old church. It's a thousand years old, the building. A thousand years old. And in the back of the church, in the church grounds, is a sundial, okay? And inscribed uh, on the sundial are the initials of John and Charles Wesley. So I know the gospel was preached there once, but no more, but no more. So we need to heed the warning. We need to remember, repent, and return. And today, it's very simple. You will either harden to this call or you'll obey this call. The word will either bounce off you or penetrate your heart. There won't be an in-between. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to the church then and to you, the individual, he who has an ear, let him hear. Hear and obey. But the reward for obeying and overcoming, dear friends, is eternal life. To the one who conquers, who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The reward is eternal life for the one who conquers. It's heaven. And boy, do we want heaven. Do we seek after heaven in all the struggles and trials of life? And even in the good times of life, it's just that foretaste of what will be immeasurably more in heaven to come. When we'll be there in the presence of the Lord Jesus forever. When we'll be reunited with loved ones that have gone ahead of us and are with him now. What a day that will be for us. And I think we need to have our minds set on the return of Christ and, and our heavenly reward. That will spur us on in these days and it will inflame our hearts with love today. But we must remember that the fight here to conquer is not just the fight for truth. It's the fight to love. And both can go together. Someone once said that courage is the greatest virtue because it undergirds all the rest. But I don't think that's quite right. I think it's love that's the greatest because love remains forever. So I exhort you in the words of John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress, I exhort you to be Mr. Valiant for truth. 
But don't forget to be Mr. Greatheart too. Be like the Apostle John, who when he was young, he was called a son of thunder, fiercely defending the truth. But he's lastingly known as the Apostle of love. So, friends, work hard, suffer long, be theological steel, and have hearts of gold. Father, thank you for your word to us, even the words of the Lord Jesus himself this morning. And I pray that you would have mercy upon us where we have not loved you as we ought, where we have not loved Christ as we ought, where we have not loved the Spirit as we ought. Inflame that now in our hearts. Yes, may we be robust in our pursuit of truth, but may we, at the end of it all, may it produce love for Jesus Christ, love for one another and love for the lost. In his name I pray. Amen.